Well, last week, um, we did look at that passage, uh, the words of which are in the order of service from uh, the end of uh, uh, John chapter 1, and we heard Jesus say to Nathanael that he would see heaven opened and he, they would see angels ascend, he would see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And we heard that Jesus is telling Nathanael that there will be moments when the curtain between heaven and earth is pulled apart and he will see that Jesus is the gate between heaven and earth. Jesus is the way that heaven touches earth and Jesus is the way that we who are of the earth can encounter heaven. Three days after Jesus said that, he turns water into wine. And in verse 11 of that section, we're told that this is the first sign that Jesus does, the first clue as to who he really is. He reveals his glory, and his disciples put their trust in him. Jesus turns water into wine, the curtain is pulled open, and Nathanael, who's there with the other disciples, sees the angels ascending and descending on him. He sees heaven touching earth. So what's going on here? What is it that Jesus is revealing? What's the clue? Well, firstly, Jesus is revealing that he is God's Messiah, that he's come to bring the promised kingdom of God. Jesus turns 120 gallons of water into 120 gallons of the best wine. That is enough for 2,000 glasses. It's even more than some people here could drink. In the Old Testament, we're told that when the Messiah, the one who will come and bring God's kingdom, the one who will be God's ruler in God's kingdom, we're told the Lord will make for all peoples a feast of well-aged wines. And that, in Amos says, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Jesus is revealing that he is the Messiah. He is the Lord. So remember when you pray who it is that we are praying to. Never assume on God. Never assume that your agenda is the same as Jesus' agenda. Jesus here actually distances himself from his mother. This is Jesus' home territory. Maybe Mary had played a part in organising the wedding, And when they run out of wine, Mary says to Jesus, do something about it. She assumes that Jesus will help them out. Maybe there's even a little bit of parental pride going on there, you know. She wants to show everybody who her son is, who her boy is, and what he can do. But Jesus' response to her is literally in the Greek, woman... It's probably better translated, dear woman. It's a term of respect, but it also does imply some distance. Dear woman, what do you and I have in common? 
It is a rebuke, a gentle rebuke, but a rebuke nevertheless. Jesus is saying to Mary, don't assume on me. My agenda is not your agenda. I've come for something else that is much bigger than avoiding an embarrassing scandal at a wedding. That sense of Jesus distancing himself from his human parents reminds us of the time when Jesus was in the temple. He was only 12 years old. And Mary says to him, your father and I have been searching for you. And Jesus replies, did you not realize that I had to be in my father's house? She says, your father and I, he says, did you not realize I had to be in my father's house? On that occasion and now, Jesus is doing what needs to happen in every parent-child relationship as the child grows older. He is opening a gap between them. And with Mary, that gap between Jesus and her is actually maybe a bigger gap than with us and our human families. Perhaps that is what Simeon means when he says that a sword will pierce through her heart. We'll look at that next week, actually. What Jesus says, uh, I, I, as translated in Greek, is And Lightfoot, one of the classic 18th century interpreters, writes of this and comments on this. What have you and I in common? What is there between us two? My ways are not your ways. I know when it is fit to work a miracle and when it is fit to withhold, but you do not. Here lies the rebuke. In Luke, we're told that on one occasion, a lady in a crowd around Jesus cried out, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you. And Jesus replies, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and do it. It's not a put down of the person whose womb bore him, but it is telling us that the reason that we honour Mary as the mother of Jesus is not because of her biological relationship to him, but because of her faith. She heard God's word and she said yes. And here in John chapter 2, we see that same faith in action. Having been challenged by Jesus, she simply turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. In other words, I realize I need to step back. I'm not going to be the mediator. It's now between you and him. He is the one who is in charge. That is the Jesus who we're being shown here. The curtain between heaven and earth is opened. And Nathaniel and his mates get a glimpse of Jesus, the one who is so much bigger than us, the Lord of creation who can turn water into wine. Don't presume on him. Don't even begin to think that your agenda is the same as his agenda. The Messiah, God's promised ruler, has come. He will establish God's kingdom in God's way and in God's time. 
All we're called to do is trust and obey him. And secondly, Jesus is revealing that he has come to transform creation. He turns water, which was intended for ritual bathing, into wine for drinking. And not just any old wine, great wine. Jesus is saying, I have come to transform creation. I have come to turn water into wine. There is a story of a priest, it has to be an Irish priest, who's returning from Lord. He has stopped at the border in the days of those days when there were borders, and the customs officer sees a very large number of suspicious-looking bottles in the back of his car. Those, said our friend, he said, said, said our friend, are, are bottles of holy water from Lord. The uh, custom office officer takes one out. He looks at it and he says, funny looking holy water. Takes a sniff of it. He says, hmm, funny smelling holy water. And then he takes a taste of it and he says, funny tasting holy water. This tastes, uh, this is whiskey. And the Irish priest looked at him in astonishment and said, well, praise the Lord, another miracle. <laughs> Jesus came to work the miracle of turning that which is ordinary into that which is extraordinary. He's come to turn sinners into saints. It's significant that Jesus uses six jars of purification as an improvised mega wine cellar. But if they are full of wine, where do you now store the water for purification? The point is that because of Jesus, because of his coming, of his death on the cross, that is, in the passage we read, his hour that has not yet come, that is the hour of his death, of his resurrection and ascension. Because of that hour, we don't need water for purification anymore. We're not purified by ritual water, not even by baptismal water. The water of baptism is a sign that we've been purified. But in and of itself, it does not purify us. If you go into a church and sprinkle some of the holy water on yourself, or if you drink some of the holy water, that will not in itself make you clean. It will not purify you. It will not heal you. It will not keep you safe from COVID. What it is at its best is a symbol which points beyond itself to Jesus. It brings Jesus by faith to you. You know, as you put the water on or whatever it is you do as you drink the water, it's sort of, it's a bit like saying, come Christ, come on to me, come into me, just like in communion. It's because of Jesus that we are purified, that we are forgiven, that we are being made clean on the inside. It's because of Jesus that God has sent his spirit to come and live in us. And it's because of what he did for us when he died on the cross. 
And Jesus is saying to Nathaniel and to the other disciples who were present, we've been told that Andrew, Peter, Philip and John were there, what I can do with water, I can do with you. I can turn ordinary men and women, women, people, women and men who are in need of purification, who are stained and damaged and weary by the muck of this world, with the filth in our hearts, into sons and daughters of God, into people who are holy, beautiful on the inside, who bring joy and delight. I've come to make you like this remarkable wine. What do we need for this transition to happen? Faith. Not faith in holy water, even though God can work through that water to bring us blessing. Not faith that all things will work out well. Not faith in my positive thinking. But faith in Jesus Christ. It's the faith of the servants in Jesus which means that Jesus is able to work the miracle. Those are the two main things that I think that Jesus is revealing here, that he is the Messiah, the Lord of creation, and that he has come to purify and transform, that he's come to turn what is ordinary into what is extraordinary. But this story is like a well. You can dip down into it many times and still draw up wonderful new wine. And as we read it, as we listen to it, as we learn it, as we let it live in us, we will discover new things. So there's one more thing that I'd like to draw up this morning from this well and offer to us. And that is that Jesus is revealing that if we're prepared to trust him and do what he says, then he is the one who can transform a crisis into a blessing. They've run out of wine at the wedding. In the culture, the couple would have been humiliated. It would have been treated as a bad omen. It was a crisis. And yet, because Mary points the servants to Jesus, because they did what he said, he transformed it into a blessing. For many people, coming to Jesus may begin with a crisis. A crisis of personal failure or sense of sin that we're out of our depth or that we've run out of resources. We've tried everywhere and now we're coming to the place of last resort. And yet out of this crisis, a miracle happens. We discover something astonishing and true and beautiful. We begin to see in a new way. We meet with the Lord Jesus with his love and with his grace. I worked on this passage early last week. That's helpful because it means that I have a week to at least try and live the passage. Try and put in practice that which I think that it is saying. And so when the crises came, whether they were big or little, and when it seemed that I had run out of resources and options, whether it was to do with the restoration and my anxiety about this building, or feeling trapped by the expectation of others and myself, or when I lost something important, because I'm always losing things, or when I worry for someone close, or when I do not know which way to turn. Then I tried to stop and take a few slow, deep breaths 
so that I physically calm down. There's an old British TV comedy series in which one of the main characters, whenever there is a crisis, runs around like a headless chicken shouting, don't panic, don't panic, don't panic. That's not very helpful. And I tried to picture Jesus at the wedding feast. There's an icon of the wedding at Cana that I find easy to visualize in my mind. And I remind myself that Jesus is in control and that he has the power to transform situations and people, to turn water into wine, but also that his agenda is not necessarily my agenda. And then I try to do what the servants do, to come to Jesus, to listen to him, and to do what he says. And while this week I cannot claim to have seen a miracle of the order of this story, or indeed anything that anybody else would call a miracle, or yet alone a Tudor. I have in a small way in the crises that I've experienced, in the small crises I've experienced, sensed the presence and the power of the Lord Jesus. And perhaps, perhaps with Nathaniel, I have seen very, very vaguely that this Jesus is the door between heaven and earth. And I'm discovering that he is the one who can turn crises into blessing. He is the one who can turn water into wine.